Hi, this is ETF.com's Exchange Traded Fighters podcast, a weekly podcast covering developments in the ETF industry. My name is Sumit Roy, and I'm Senior ETF Analyst for ETF.com. This week, I'm talking with Brian Armour, Director of Passive Strategies Research for North America at Morningstar Research Services. Brian, great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. So, Brian, we're sitting here just a few days removed from the end of the first half of 2023. So naturally, it's a great time to talk about what just transpired during the first half as it relates to ETF. So why don't we start there and specifically with flows? And I'd love it if you could tell us about the bigger picture. Maybe you can tell us about total inflows and what asset classes were in demand. And then we can drill down into individual ETFs. Absolutely. So, you know, 2023 started off um, a little rocky. And I think, you know, growth stocks in particular really exploded out of the March lull that we saw. And and stocks, uh, you know, became a, a really hot spot for investors in June. Um, they added almost $60 billion and, and that flows, uh, to, to stock ETFs in June and, and they're up to about a little over a hundred, uh, billion year to date now. And, um, so it seems like some of the, the conservative, uh, flows data that we saw earlier in the year, um, primarily inflows into fixed income, for example, have started to subside as, as investors are seeing the opportunity, seeing the recent performance in stocks. Uh, and, and jumping back in there. When we're looking at bond ETFs in general, we're mostly seeing bond flows go into broad index funds, uh, but but also a significant amount into to active. And so um, when we're looking at things like dimensional, uh, fund advisors has added $14 billion year to date. Um, and then JP Morgan, uh, and Jeppy in particular has added 10 billion, and that that explains almost half of the flows into active ETFs. But uh, they remain a hot spot for investors right now, where you know they're uh, five or six percent of the ETF market by term by assets, but they're they're bringing in regularly about 20 percent of ETF flows. Wow, that that's incredible. That is incredible. So, Brian, you did touch on the U.S. stock ETFs and how they saw that big surge of inflows in June. I know I was scratching my head earlier this year when we weren't seeing any inflows for U.S. equity ETFs, even though the market was ripping higher. It seems like when the, the stock market rally accelerated in May and June in the second quarter, it seems like investors finally couldn't ignore it anymore. And that's why they rushed in all of a sudden. Is that what happened? Yeah, I think so. I think the caution that we saw from investors early on, um, it, it really centered around a lot of pundits and and folks talking about fears of recession and how how the higher the Fed's uh, uh, interest rate policy would affect stocks in general, but I think in particular growth stocks. And you know, once the performance sort of flipped around from 2022 and we started seeing a lot of what didn't work last year start to perform well. We slowly saw investors build their confidence um, and jump back in. Um, but for the most part, what we, you know, the the categories that were receiving the most inflows were like large blend categories. So is is effectively 
the way that it's still some caution they're they're investing in more diversified uh products and and staying away from maybe some of the the nichier things that you know investors were big on in in 2020 for example Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. And yeah, we haven't seen huge inflows into speculative type of ETFs like ARKK, for instance. Now, right. Brian, I want to ask you about individual ETFs. I know you top touched on a couple of them, like JEPI. What type of funds were investors gravitating towards during the first half of the year? Yeah, so broadly diversified index trackers were among the top uh, funds for investors. And uh, so looking at like Vanguard S&P 500 ETF EOO seemed to top the leaderboard. There's been, you know, spy uh, inflows have been sort of up and down, but generally speaking, S&P 500 and total stock market ETFs have been some of the best. Um, and, and for bonds, you know, total bond market type funds, you know, things that would fall into sort of the intermediate core category at Morningstar and also government bonds, uh, which, you know, could potentially reflect um, an expectation that a recession's around the corner because government bonds don't have that that credit risk that you have with corporate bonds. And, um, you know, if, if interest rates were to drop a little long, long-term government bonds uh, would, would benefit um, from, from their high duration. But BND would be the, the, the bond fund that we, we really saw. And then, in terms of uh, uh, active ETFs, um, the winner was uh, JEPI, which is the the JP Morgan Equity Income uh, ETF, and that that one is a cover call strategy, and so it's a little different um, than the other ones I just mentioned, and it's it's a really interesting case because you know who would have thought in twenty twenty one you know, we're going through the meme stock boom and now we have a subreddit for a covered call strategy that's hugely popular. And this thing is just bringing in money month over month. Um, what it does is it basically caps the upside um, by selling an, an at-the-money call um, for a, a sort of low lower volatility stock portfolio. What ends up happening with some of these strategies is they increase the yield. They're seen as sort of like a way to navigate choppier markets where maybe you you benefit from uh, selling a call option if if the stock market's really not going to um, soar. But what the problem is when the stock market does perform well, um, you know, you you don't know ahead of time, and so you could easily miss out on on performance, which I'm sure. In the the second quarter of this year, many uh, cover call investors um, have missed out. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see whether these inflows for JEPI continue uh, if it kind of underperforms the broader market. Because I was looking, and as of today, JEPI is up less than 5% year-to-date versus more than 15% for SPY. Do you think that matters for investors? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's going to be something that becomes front and center. And I think w- one of the things that gets lost in this is that, you know, stock market doesn't follow a normal distribution of returns. And what I mean by that is there are fat tails where there are months or years where there are large moves down and there are 
large gains and sort of like significantly abnormally large moves. And what happens with the cover call strategy or, or some of the defined outcome uh, ETFs that we're seeing that are more popular is they, they do keep exposure to that fat tail to the downside, but lose exposure. They give up the exposure to the fat tail to the upside. So any sort of unexpectedly large move up or down tends to hurt these types of uh, funds. And just over time, they tend to be higher, come with higher fees than, than the market. You know, if, if they were to just buy sort of a, a stock index fund, one of the biggest, best examples of, of this, if you look at the Global X NASDAQ 100 covered call ETF, which has a longer track record than Jeppy, which is why I'm using this as an example, but it goes back about 10 years. It has, you know, seven and a half billion dollars in AUM. But over that 10-year period, it trailed the NASDAQ 100 ETF QQQ by 9.5% annualized. And so that's something where you you just, as an investor, you just can't ignore uh, that underperformance over the long term. That's fascinating. So that is pretty significant underperformance in that ETF. Do you think JEPI is differentiated enough versus other covered call ETFs where it might outperform, maybe because it's actively managed, or do you think it's just um, you know going to end up being similar to those other covered call ETFs where inevitably it's going to underperform longer term? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I think we, what we see is it has more of a low vol stock sleeve rather than something that's high flying like the NASDAQ 100 that you know potentially has a different place in the portfolio. Um, but it's something that will get caught up in the same type of issue where we see it, you know, it's selling calls against S&P 500. And so that's effectively going to force the the fund to miss out on some of those returns. But I think it will be a maybe a less volatile version of the NASDAQ 100 cover call ETF that I just mentioned, although JP Morgan also has a, a NASDAQ 100 version of this JEPI strategy as well. Gotcha. So around $10 billion of inflows into JEPI this year. Another ETF that's seen about $10 billion of inflows this year is QUAL, Q-U-A-L. It's a quality ETF. And you did mention, Brian, that people are kind of still worried about a recession and high interest rates and things like that. So this ETF might be a way to get stock market exposure while avoiding companies that are going to be hurt most by those things. Another one that kind of stood out to me was COWS, C-O-W-Z, the free cash flow ETF, probably benefited for similar reasons, inflows of $2.7 billion year to date. Um, you know, do any other ETFs similar to these stand out to you? Um, yeah, I mean, I think overall people are going into more broadly diversified ETFs. But uh, yeah, I think Qual is a great example of, of a strategy that has worked really well in the last decade, let's say, um, where quality has been a, a really strong factor, uh, especially when compared to, to things like value over that time period. And so I think people are rallying around it. They want stronger balance sheets in case of uh, turmoil. And, and for that same reason, cows is you know, gaining some attention as well, because there's a lot of free cash flow um, coming into there. But part of the reason why Qual is added so much is a shift in the way that 
BlackRock is running their model portfolios. And so it was effectively, most of that came from sort of a rotation from um, an ESG ETF, which is their MSCI ESG aware, I believe ETF, uh, ESGU. Um, they, they've sort of flipped from using that in their model portfolios to, to qual. Um, and so we saw sort of like that negative flow mirror, uh, quals inflow as an outflow in, in the SGU. That's super interesting. A lot of people don't think of those two as being, uh, in any way equivalent. Um, so, you know, I think that's a great segue actually to talk about the outflows that we've seen this year. You've already mentioned ESGU. What other ETFs have investors been taking their money out of this year? Yeah, we've seen uh, a lot of money leave uh, commodity space, especially energy um, in particular. And uh, that that is going to be a prime example of, of where we've seen outflows like XLE, for example, um, which is a select sector spider ETF for energy, and that's uh, had lost almost you know over four billion dollars, and and so commodities and 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 really an ESG is another prime example where the increased political politicalization of ESG has has only hurt flows in the U.S. It's become a little confusing with you know BlackRock rotating their model portfolio, Larry Fink saying. You know, I, I'm no longer going to use the term ESG. Um, it's it's still going strong in Europe, but for the most part, uh, flows have stalled and and actually reversed in in the U.S. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see you know how ESG fares, especially next year with the whole uh, campaign for the president presidential election in 2024 heating up. Do you think that could actually have an impact in terms of? flows because you know a lot of the flows are driven by sentiment so if people are you know worried about ESG because of the presidential election could that actually impact ESG ETF flows yeah certainly and i i think it would be in in two different ways number 1 i think who becomes president could impact some of the the fundamental growth out expectations for some of these uh more ESG centric companies but also i think as to your point as as everyone's watching presidential debates and i'm sure esg and environmental issues are certain to come up um it could it could sort of drive a a, a deeper wedge into to people's opinions on esg as well what's your take though brian do you think esg as a movement still has legs or do you think it's kind of topped out especially when it comes to etfs it's a great question i think there there are some legs in in the sense that like i think esg can be a very personal uh topic for people and and so there's going to be always there will be demand for it um but uh you know to this extent i don't know and i think maybe some of the way that some of these funds express ESG by um, having sort of like these low active risk uh, screeners that come in and, and sort of keep the the sector weights. Maybe those aren't going to be the wave of the future for ESG. Maybe people will start looking for more ESG activities at the end of the day that that can prove some sort of value to, to the environment, to you know, social or gov governance types. 
of uh of um concerns and like what we'll see what what happens but in terms of investing it's it's a constant trade-off between do we want to solve problems or do we want returns and um it's not always they're not always going to go hand in hand but they could potentially share some of the same outlook going forward if if esg begins to pose significant risk to to companies absolutely yeah definitely there is that trade-off it'll be interesting to see what happens so brian we've done a good job i think covering flows for the first half but something else that kicked off towards the end of the first half was the whole spot bitcoin blackrock story what yeah. exactly happened with that is there anything truly new here yeah so blackrock's filing uh sort of came out of nowhere and they 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 had not filed in the past and for a spot bitcoin etf and so it was it was a bit of a surprise it wasn't something that seemed to like a priority of blackrock historically um that's clearly changed um i think larry fink i forget if it was yesterday it was this week was on um fox business and uh was talking about sort of the future of bitcoin and 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 how he wants to work with the sec to make bitcoin cheaper so it's it's really interesting to follow the along with this story and we've seen sort of some of the old players begin filing we have arkk or sorry ark um uh joining with them and fidelity and wisdom tree invasco a bunch of others that had, had also sort of filed in the past and they're all they're all updating their filings as in response to BlackRock, um, and and the main difference in what BlackRock's trying to do is build out a agreement between the listing exchange uh, for the the ETF and the Bitcoin exchange uh, that they would be using to to trade. And it came out right. The SEC asked for more specificity regarding the the Bitcoin exchange uh, that that they referenced in the filings because they didn't actually name anyone. And so everyone refiled and said Coinbase. And so Coinbase is going to be entering into a surveillance sharing agreement with NASDAQ, with SIBO potentially. Um, and, and that will potentially give the SEC some some level of comfort with um, the, the overall surveillance of Bitcoin market, the underlying Bitcoin markets. And the way that I've seen people look at it is sort of standalone is Coinbase um, enough because it is the largest uh, Bitcoin exchange in, in the US by volume. Um, and if you look at something like Binance that they effectively dropped all US dollar operations, all operations in the US um, in response to the SEC's lawsuit against them, but so Coinbase could be a good way in for for regulators. The problem is that you know this trades globally. Bitcoin trades globally. It it trades across dozens of exchanges. Um, so how how well can you surveil that market for um, manipulation is is a tough question, but. Whether Coinbase is enough or whether in conjunction with the futures market on CME um, could, could get it there, we'll, we'll have to see. But it seems like BlackRock is feeling like there's a good chance here. Yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to see what happens. 
And, you know, a lot of people are pointing to that surveillance sharing agreement uh, that BlackRock and NASDAQ uh, struck with Coinbase um, as something that maybe, you know, might finally appease the SEC. But it's kind of, you know, bizarre to me since the SEC is suing Coinbase for operating as an unregistered securities exchange and clearinghouse. So how could having a surveillance sharing agreement with a company that's supposedly operating illegally be a good thing? I, I think it, you know, it's kind of bizarre, but honestly, this is kind of subjective and really ends up being a judgment call by the SEC, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it would solve some problems uh, for the SEC in the sense that, you know, they could get this monkey off their back, but also uh, sort of solve for uh, some of their issues with Coinbase and different exchanges. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it is really interesting the way it's playing out. Like the fact that this came out in the same month that the SEC's lawsuit against Coinbase uh, became public is, is very interesting. I think that something that's going to people are missing is that I think the exchanges in the SEC working on some of the details around that surveillance sharing, sharing agreement are going to be key to whether they end up approving or denying these the latest uh, round of filings. Um, so we'll we'll just see if if that's not going to be showing up in filings. That's not anything that's going to be public. So um, this might be one where we just have to wait, wait and see what the exchanges, what the SEC come up with. Definitely, definitely. Uh, and in the meantime, I am keeping my eye on that uh, discount on the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. Yeah. La last I checked, I think it's around 27%, but it was as high as 44% just about a month and a half ago. So that does seem to suggest that the market thinks the odds of a spot Bitcoin ETF are much higher than they were in June. But it doesn't seem like it's a lock. Otherwise, that discount would be much smaller than 27%, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um there there are sort of two two pieces to that. Like number one, there's certainly people speculating that Grayscale could have a spot Bitcoin ETF and could be taken out at at NAV eventually, meaning uh they'll be able to sell with no no discount. Um but it it is opportunistic. The problem is that you're sort of conflating whether there will be a spot Bitcoin ETF with the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust becoming a spot Bitcoin ETF, which isn't assured at this point. And, um, you know, it's it's been a rough go for GBTC investors. And, uh, you know, it it the fact that Grayscale went down the path of suing the SEC to try to get um, a spot Bitcoin ETF conversion for their trust rather than opening up a redemption program might, you know, it, it doesn't turn out to be the best uh, avenue for, for investors. But hopefully we see that that discount continue to, to get smaller and smaller over time. Great point. And Brian, before I let you go, do you have a prediction? Do you think we're going to see a spot Bitcoin ETF this year? I'm going to go on the record and say no, not this year. But I think possibly next year is, is what I'll, if I have to time this, which is, highly subjective and i have no idea but i'm gonna go with next year great great we'll take that we'll take that so well this has been a great conversation brian it's been an absolute pleasure and i really appreciate you taking the time and joining us on the show 
Absolutely. Thank thank you so much for having me. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find this and all other Exchange Traded Fighters episodes on ETF.com or on any major podcast platform. See you next week.